Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. Kidding. There's classes downstairs. Pastor Brian is also our uh, children's pastor. He's down there with a bunch of volunteers. They go downstairs into classes that we have for them. So if you have Bibles this morning, uh, take them out and open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, these uh, Sundays that we have in the lectionary, the readings that we have actually are shaping up to help us to think about our ecclesiology, which is a super fancy word that makes me sound smart that simply means what we think of the church. It's the theology of the church. And I think it's a helpful thing uh, that, that these scriptures are given to us um, and that we can think about the ecclesiology, our ecclesiology as a church at this particular time in the life of our church. Um, if you're new here or newer here within the last weeks or months or, or year, um, well, there's a lot of you who are, put it that way, it's more of a statement. Hopefully, uh, folks who've been around aren't tired of us saying that. There's, there's a lot of new folks that are around here. And I think this is exciting, and I think this is fun, and I think it's been enjoyable for everybody so far. Um, and as I've had conversations with numbers of you who have come from different places, uh, some of you have moved into the area, fair. Some of you have come from other churches. And so um, even those who have come from different places uh, into, into the Lancaster area have come from different churches. So um, our, our growth as a church uh, has come from people coming from other churches, which is fine. We've also contributed to other churches growing. <laughs> In actuality, I think, I, I think this is okay, um, and I think the, the scripture that's given to us today will help us to think about uh, and understand this okayness even more. Um, what I want to help us to think about today is how we can bless those churches and traditions that are different from us, and how we actually need them. I want to say that one more time. Today, I want us to, to think about, help us think about how we can bless other churches and traditions that are different from us and how we actually need them. The fact that there are different expressions of Christianity and, and what it means to follow Jesus is not a bad thing. Uh, it's actually quite natural. What makes it unhealthy and unhelpful is how we view and how we hold those differences and the people who hold those differences. And so how we treat them and how we view other traditions and the people who are part of those traditions uh, can be beneficial to the body of Christ and beneficial to us as we seek to follow Jesus together. Or if we don't do it well, it can be harmful to the church. So we're going to jump right into the text this morning from 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 18. It'll be on the screen behind me. This is Paul writing to this church. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. 
My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household had informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. The other one says, I follow Apollos. The other one says, why follow Cephas or Peter? And the other one says still, I follow Jesus. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into my name, into the name of Paul? I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I've baptized anyone else. Don't you love the humanity in Scripture? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us being saved, it is the power of God. One of the last things that we hear from Jesus uh, before he, he takes his place on the cross comes to us in John chapter 17. It's his prayer. And he prays for the church, and he prays for the people who will follow him in the future. And he says this, praying to his Father, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays for the unity of the church because it seems that the unity of the church bears witness to God. Paul encourages the unity of the church because when the church is not unified, it is indicative that the church has taken its eyes off of Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished in the reconciling work of the cross. There is meant to be, I think, diversity within the body of Christ. This is why you go into the later chapters in, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12 and you read about different parts being of the same body. This is not what was happening within the Corinthian church. Rather, instead, there were divisions that were being created along the lines of particular leaders. Or better said, it wasn't that the leaders were creating these divisions. It was more like the people who wanted to use Paul or Apollos or Peter or even Jesus kind of as their, their strong man or their straw man or their image, so to speak, for their particular belief or their sect, they were elevating them to the point so they would describe their particular view of Jesus or following Jesus or whatever it meant to be that would divide them from other people. Paul, Apollos, Peter, Jesus, they were not at odds with one another. Paul and Peter had some back and forth a little bit, um, but there's no evidence in the New Testament that they were combating one another. And so the divisions that were present in the church weren't present because the leaders were making them present. It was more because people with their agendas uh, used these leaders in order to perpetuate their agendas. So let's look at these four groups of people that are named, or these four leaders who are named, and maybe what these groups, each of them, represented. First is Paul. So Paul is the one who brings the message to the Corinthians. He's the one who establishes the church in Corinth. Uh, he's a church planter, so to speak. This is the first church I've ever pastored that has not been a church plant. Every church that I've been a part of, uh, this is my fourth, has been a church plant of some sort. I have not planted them. 
but have come along uh, later on. And there is something about the founding pastor in church plants. There's this air of like legacy and all these kinds of things because it started from nothing. It's come to something. It's actually sustained and is alive. And, and so uh, church plants, there's something about the planting pastor that's really, really special. And Paul was that to the Corinthian church. He was their planting pastor. Now, at the time of this writing, he's not with them. He's no longer present, but his legacy still lives on. We might say that Paul represents to some in the Corinthian church what the good old days of the church were like. Second is Apollos. Apollos is introduced in Acts 18, and this is what uh, Luke says about him in Acts 18. He's someone who had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, although he knew only the baptism of John. Eventually, he meets Priscilla and Aquila, who were companions of Paul, and they give him further instruction, help him to understand a little more about the way of Jesus. Apollos comes from Alexandria, which is like a university town. So where Paul comes from is not a university place. He's a smart guy, but Alexandria at the time is a place that's just a very intellectually uh, rich center. He came and was influenced by the sophists. He was sophisticated. He was articulate. He was passionate. We might say Apollos was the charismatic young leader who has passion and can communicate well and is gifted in teaching and drawing a crowd, and has a ton of followers on Instagram. That's Apollos. Then there's Cephas, or Peter. We don't know exactly Peter's connection with the city of Corinth, or the church in Corinth. It could have been that he was there. It could have been that he had followers that went there, uh, um, who had represented and, and exerted some influence. Um, but while Paul ministered primarily to Gentiles, Peter, as we know, uh, his ministry was largely among the Jews. And as we read throughout the book of Acts, um, the Jews really struggled to reconcile the customs and the laws that, that have spanned thousands of years, the implications of that with the person of Jesus. And so from Peter's perspective and, and, and this group, perhaps we could say of of them that they were the group of fundamentalists who were holding on to their tradition with legalistic tendencies. So that's three of the four. There's a fourth party, it's called the party of Christ. Uh, Paul isn't writing as if this is the group that they should be with, this is actually one group as a part of the other three. It's another faction of the church. You can even be divided when you say, well, I just follow Jesus. These are the folks who are more Gnostic in their thinking. Gnosticism simply means kind of a disembodiment of the self. We believe, Gnostics believe that the spiritual is good, that the flesh and the body, what happens in the body doesn't really make a difference, but what, what really matters is the spiritual. And so Gnostic folks or this group of people are probably those kinds of super spiritual people that you might have encountered. Often we hear uh, super spiritual language, or I hear super spiritual language um, in the midst of suffering as a way to escape suffering and, or in order to avoid hard things uh, that challenge our faith. 
we hear things like, well, just, just have faith. And it being kind of this call to let go of any responsibility to actually do something in a situation and just have faith. One of the common characteristics of these folks is, is their presence. Their presence makes us feel spiritually inadequate. I feel inadequate around these folks. I'm like, man, I must not, I must not have enough faith. Because I'll well, just have faith. And, then, and you know, they... It's just unhelpful. So these are the four groups that are present in uh, Paul's time. Now, what's interesting is uh, 1 Corinthians is dated around 54 AD. So this is maybe two decades after Jesus. Uh, in, in 95 AD, Clement of Rome names three of these four parties. So he doesn't include the Christ party, but he names the party of Paul and Apollos and Peter as still present in Corinth. So 40 years later, same thing is still going on in the Corinthian church. There are still the factions that are happening. And as you and I have probably experienced, these kinds of factions still exist today. People long for the good old days, which I think is probably a way of maintaining some sort of control. They want the new, dynamic, charismatic personality. We live in an entertainment, consumeristic culture. Um, we want somebody to, to make us feel good. I think, I think one of the things that entertaining and, and charismatic personalities do is actually um, takes away the work that we need to do for ourselves. Somebody else is doing it for us. They're amazing. They're great. They're just giving us what we need to... They're doing it for us. And then there are those who want to control their religion through legalism. And maybe we've come from those kinds of environments. Some want to spiritualize our way out of actually dealing with what is in the name of faith. And so to this, Paul asks the question, is Christ divided? Meaning, can you, can you just portion out Christ? Can you just take a little bit of him? Can you take the part of Christ that you want? And he suggests, no, you can't do that. You get all of Christ. If you don't get all of Christ, then you lose the cross. Sadly, from the earliest days of the church until now, the church has found ways and reasons to be divided. And we should just name this, and we should lament it. But here's the thing. Rather than dwelling on this part of our history and our past and our present, rather than dwelling on this dysfunction, we can and should look to recognize the gift that is the diversity of the body of Christ as we are united in Christ. So we're done naming the dysfunction and the division pieces. What we want to do now is focus on the gift that it can be. Now, I'm in trouble because Brian was supposed to be back up here for this next bit. So slowly, I'm going to call, yeah, Ethan and Greg and Joe. And he told me seven minutes. I've been going for longer than seven minutes, I think. Hey, there you are, man. 
So uh, as I was getting the message ready this week, I, I, I asked Brian to come up with a makeshift quartet. Um, and so I sprung this idea on him Thursday. Uh, so if this doesn't work for whatever reason, I'm going to own it. Oh, we're good. We're good. You're good? All right. So here's, here's what I asked Brian to do. I asked Brian to illustrate the beauty that comes from being united, united in Christ, um, singing the same song, but with different parts. The beauty of being united with Christ, singing the same song, Jesus, but having different parts. Go for it. Hold on. Are we? <laughs> What's up? We're just doing. You do whatever. You want. One part, right? Bill. Do the whole thing. Oh, the whole thing. This is not rehearsed, obviously. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. So you give Bill. Yeah. So first of all, we have we have there. the melody, right? Just the melody. Come, Come thou 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 Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. It's also nice, there's a little bit more depth to it, but if we add more. Come, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Three-dimensional, so you continue to add depth and layers, and we can we could continue, but we only have five guys, so we're going to do one more. Come, thou fount of every blessing, to my heart to sing thy grace. Thanks, man. Thank you, guys. Get the point? Uh, Caleb, if you want to put up that picture that's next, hopefully. So a few weeks ago, uh, Anjanette preached on Acts 10 of Peter and Cornelius and how Jesus erases lines. And during her sermon, I kept coming back to this comic that I had seen uh, a while ago. Um, and if you can't tell, this is Jesus erasing lines that are, are drawn. Um, in the past, I had done deep dives into Acts 10, and um, I did resonate with what Anjanette said. Uh, and then we got together over coffee the week uh, following and talked about it uh, a little more. And here's the thing about preaching. There's always an and, because you can never say everything that needs to be said. And on one hand, I was convicted by Anjanette's message because I shared with you, I think, last week that I said, I don't draw lines unless people draw lines. Then I draw lines with the people that draw lines. Um, but as I sat with it, I thought to myself, there will always be lines. And not just the kind that Paul talks about in the Corinthian church. There are other lines. There are lines that are not exclusionary, but they are, there are lines that do mark distinction. 
In addition to Jesus' erasing lines, because all metaphors eventually do fall apart, it could also be said that Jesus transcends lines. Lines are created around ways that we encounter God because we need a container to put that experience in. We need a way to understand it. Words are nothing more than a bunch of lines, and we expend a tremendous amount of words trying to understand and explain God's presence among us. Sometimes lines aren't exclusionary, but they represent our limitations. There are best ways and attempts to understand and honor how God has met us. And this is how traditions have come, up, come, come forth. People have different experiences of God, and then they build around that experience. But when they fall short, or the point at which they fall short is when they say, this is the way to encounter and to experience God. But at their best, there are different, there, there are different ways to describe how God has met us. Lines give us a defined experience and a way to understand and a way to process what is happening between us and God. The Bible is filled with stories of such lines and the ways that people experienced God. Going back to Brian's harmony, we'll, we'll use the music staff to kind of illustrate this. Um, I am not, I can hang with music stuff, but I cannot read well at all, and so... Again, you're going to have to forgive if I overstep the metaphorical bounds here. But let's start with a musical staff of what I'll call the OGs. If you're young and hip like I am, that means the originals. Anybody? No? Okay. So these, this is kind of the first um, splitting of the church. And so in around 500... Um, the Catholic and uh, the Eastern Orthodox split from one another. Uh, and then uh, eventually you have the Protestant Reformation that splits from the Catholic Church and our denomination, the Anabaptist one, or our tradition, the Anabaptist one, comes out of the Protestant Reformation. We are the radical reformers. And so each of these came about, and I'm not a church historian enough to be able to explicate all these things, but each of them came about because there were different notes that they were singing. Unfortunately, they caused division uh, instead of being able to sing together. Um, in reading this week, uh, somebody had suggested, one of the church historians had suggested, that if Martin Luther would have hung on just a little bit longer, there was a reformer who came after him that might have been able to work that reform within the Catholic Church rather than splitting from it. Within the Catholicism, you, you have plenty of different traditions. You have Benedictines and Jesuits and Carmelites and Franciscans and many more. Uh, within the Protestant tradition, Caleb, you can go to the next slide. This is from Richard Foster's book, Stream of, Streams of Living Water. You have the contemplative tradition. You have the charismatic tradition. You have the evangelical tradition. You have the social justice or liberation tradition. Altogether, uh, at least this is what Google says, and I know they're not the most reliable source or whatnot, but um, the number is probably, I mean, it's always ballpark. 
there are, at this time in the world, 45,000 denominations. I'm going to start my own next week. <laughs> our own tradition, let's go to our own tradition now. The Brethren in Christ Church. So the Brethren in Christ, we have four parts. Actually, quite literally, we have four parts. We were started as an Anabaptist and Pietist movement. And so, uh, super briefly, I'll spend a little time here just to help us understand what that means. The Anabaptists uh, were folks who broke from Protestantism, from Luther and what he was doing, because they didn't think Luther went far enough. There was still this linkage with the state over the issue of baptism, and their, their main thing was around the issue of baptism, the practice of baptism. They believed and they gave their lives, uh, sacrificed their lives to the conviction that people should be baptized because they believe and want to follow Jesus, not just because they, they're a part of a state system, because the church and the state were so much tied together at the time. And so they began baptizing or re-baptizing. Anna doesn't mean anti-Anna means another, another baptism. And so the emphasis on community, the emphasis on peace, the emphasis on baptism were distinctives. The Pietist movement came about around the same time because of the hard-hearted intellectual nature of, of kind of the church and where it was at at the time. And Pietism uh, reinforced this internal experiential uh, connection with God. Um, I don't know if you could say it's maybe an early precursor to the charismatic movement or not, but there was an internal connection, a heart connection that was emphasized. The holiness movement then for the Brethren in Christ, once we came over, we originated in, in Switzerland, Germany. Um, once we came over uh, to the U.S. then, uh, we picked up the holiness movement, which if you're familiar with church history at all, came around the turn of the uh, 1900s. So the Great Awakenings, Charles Wesley, Finney, uh, the revivals, the Great Revivals, and, and the Holiness Movement came about, which was um, paying particular attention to um, living a holy life to God. And that's where some of us uh, probably encountered legalism, maybe in our, our childhood years. My parents were grandparents, parents were Mennonite, so my grandmother were covering all her life. Did she need to at that age? No, but did she know how to do her hair otherwise? Probably not, so. God rest your soul, Grandma. So the holiness movement uh, came about um, focused on living a pure life to God. The evangelical movement uh, influence stream for the, for the Brethren in Christ Church actually came about in the 50s uh, because the church leaders at the time were at this conference called the National Association of Evangelicals and they had been convicted at that time that they were just really inward focused and really didn't have any outward focus as to what was happening in the world. And this is why a lot of Brethren in Christ churches are in farmland. Uh, we started out in Lancaster City and ended up here, but um, like Peckway BIC is out in farmland, Manor BIC out in farmland, Crossroads BIC in Mount Joy out in farmland. Crossroads, I think, is one of the earliest ones here. Um, but those are kind of the three historical churches in Lancaster County, all in farmland. Um, but the evangelical movement influenced them uh, to look beyond themselves. Um, and so it, it was very much concerned with God's movement in the world, and that's where they picked up that particular influence. 
And so that's what influences our tradition. Now, within our own tradition, uh, as well as other traditions, um, there are also cultural expressions. So you can go to the next slide. Cultural expressions and contexts in which these traditions take shape and form. And these are just a smattering, right? Uh, when I was at uh, Mennonite World Conference, is a, a worldwide gathering of Anabaptists uh, that happens every six years, I think, and the two of them uh, ago was in Harrisburg. And so every night there would be a different um, country or culture that would lead worship. And so uh, for the U.S., um, it was four-part harmony. That, it was four-part harmony night. That was like the U.S., that was probably the Anglo contribution. My favorite was the African night. Oh, man. Can you, you can do that. Um, I mean, but just the expressions, musical expressions, um, are, are so important. Uh, how you participate in worship is so important. If you're never exposed to these things, A, you don't know they exist, and B, there's part of you that hasn't woken up yet, you know? Um, and so even within our theological traditions, there's different expressions, whether uh, they be Asian expressions or African or uh, Latino expressions. Vincent Donovan, um, who's a Catholic missionary who's, who's since passed, but he wrote one of the best books I've ever read, period. It's called uh, Christianity Rediscovered. Um, small little book. Uh, but he says this, that when the gospel reaches a people where they are, their response to that gospel is the church in a new place. And the song they will sing is that new unsung song, unsung song that unwritten melody that haunts all of us. His idea of evangelization is this, empowering a particular people with the freedom and the responsibility of the gospel. So what Donovan's suggesting, if you're missing this, he's suggesting that you trust God for the gospel to take particular shapes and expressions in different cultural contexts. This is paradigm-altering probably for most of us because this is in grave contrast to white missionaries taking a white gospel to non-white nations in order to start white churches and engage in white discipleship. All right, now we're going to move on to the next one, uh, this next staff. And I'm, I'm calling this staff the minority voices. Uh, within the context of the church presently and historically, these are voices that we do not regularly hear from. Uh, women in the church throughout church history have largely been silenced. Uh, I'm grateful that we are a part of a denomination who affirms women in ministry, will ordain women in ministry, I'm glad and grateful that Jane is an ordained pastor with me, that she preaches with me, um, but that is the exception to the rule, historically. There is a reason why when I'm not speaking, it's mostly women who take this pulpit. Because it's important to hear their voice and to hear their experience and to hear their theology because it's different than mine.
Historically in the church, minority, of vo minority voices, women and people of color uh, have not had a place. Historically, and, and probably even presently, at least in publication, most of our theologians are white males. And this position, historically and presently, is a position of power. And it impacts how we read and how we understand the Bible. I'm recognizing uh, in my own life, in my own study, the voices that are present in my own, um, as I study scripture, how much white male theology dominates my bookshelves. I'm making it a point to read and include uh, authors and voices from non-white male backgrounds. And uh, recently I read this powerful little book called If God Breathes, Why Can't I? by Angela Parker. And in this book, she, she poses a, a, a powerful question. It's in your bulletin. I think it would be worthwhile for you to sit with. She says, have you ever read a biblical text and wondered where your body would be in the story? Angela is a black womanist theologian, teaches theology, New Testament, in the university setting. I don't have to think about that question. I have been trained that my body is the body that's the one in the scripture. I don't even have to think about it. But people of color have a very different experience. When, when I started out in ministry, there was this guarding against um, the social gospel. And because there was this fear that you would diminish what Jesus did on the cross if you would just focus on the social implications of the gospel. And so the social gospel was looked at with a red flag. Friends, that's a place of privilege when you look at the scripture with that kind of lens. Because as a white male, I'm in a dominant position. I'm not reading liberation theology naturally because I don't need to be liberated. I can, I can drive down the highway at 90 miles an hour on, on a given night and be pulled over and I don't have to be afraid to get shot. And so the question of where our bodies are in the text is an important one. Because naturally, we see our bodies in the text, but we don't naturally see others' bodies in the text. And the scripture and the work of Jesus has to be big enough to include every body. The two on the bottom... These are, these are body, bodies that are included in the work of Jesus. In my doctoral work, I was, uh, one of the things that our doctoral program did was expose us to a bunch of different authors and perspectives, and one of the perspectives 
was one of brothers and sisters who um, live with disabilities. And uh, I'll frame it in a story. Of, um, I have a friend whose wife uh, is, has been in a wheelchair since her college days. He's a pastor friend of mine. And I remember him telling me the story of um, they were about to take on, I think it was their first senior pastorate, and his, his wife was explicit that she wanted to tell her story, and she wanted to make sure the church did not pray for her to get out of her wheelchair. As a very mobile person, you think, well, that's not normal. That's normal for her. God meets her in that place. Manor BIC has a wonderful ministry to adults with disabilities. In fact, in our church history here, we used to, in the 80s, I believe, there was a Sunday school class that was 30 or 40 people that ministered and, and just welcomed adults with disability. Henry Nouwen, um, famous writer, uh, Catholic theologian, speaker, after 25 years of, of hitting the circuit hard, Harvard and, and wherever else that he taught, he felt that the inside of his soul was, was um, the light was being extinguished. And he spent the rest of his life at La Arche in France with, I think, Adam was his name, a person he, who he would care for every day, feed, dress, clothe. This person who had an enormous impact, still has an enormous impact through his writings, traded it all in because Adam had something to teach him. This last one on the list might be controversial to some of you, but it needs to be said. There are members of the LGBTQ community who love and follow Jesus. And when I read Parker's question, can I find my body in the scriptures, this is a group of people that I thought of immediately. I wondered where would their body be in the story of God? Can they find their bodies in God's story? Can the church help them to find their place in God's story? I serve alongside of ministers in the ministerium here in Manaheim Township who are members of the LGBTQ community, and they love Jesus. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind they love Jesus. I have a friend who lost a lot and sacrificed a lot in order to, to minister to the LGBTQ community. And he says, seeing God's work in their lives is worth everything. Paul begins this way and we'll end with this encouragement. I 
I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Unity does not mean uniformity, friends. The scriptures themselves, the Bible is not uniform. Sometimes it's very contradictory. But there is unity amongst the scriptures, and that's actually one of the baselines for canonization in the first place. But unity does not mean uniformity. I think we can be united in the person and the work of Jesus while trusting all, uh, so much of this superfluous stuff to the grace and the mercy of God. The Jesus Collective, uh, it's an Anabaptist network of churches and leaders from Canada. They put together uh, what they call five markers for a new reformation. Oh, I should say, hey Mike, you, you wanna get the kids? You wanna get the kids? Oh, you did? Thank you. Uh, they put together a, a document that uh, was called Five Markers for New Ref- Reformation. And the fifth marker says this. The church is defined by our shared center, Jesus, not by the lines that we draw. They describe this as a new approach to disagreement. Now, theologically, they they then contrast and name how it challenges theology, Christian theology, and then secularism. The challenge to theology is this. The shared center is in contrast to the current endless fracturing in churches and denominations where everyone must agree on nearly everything to worship or to do mission together. This new approach to disagreement where Jesus as a center also contrasts the spirit of secularism, where full inclusion in the group requires strict purity tests, where failure to subscribe to any one piece of current orthodoxy can result in exclusion or splintering. Following Jesus, friends, is so stinking sloppy. And I'm not saying theology is not important. But when theology becomes exclusionary, I think it becomes more and more dangerous. Jesus treated people humanly. And I think that is the invitation of the church is to get down in the dirt and the muck and the mire and the I don't know quite how to figure this out, but I know the first thing that I'm called to do is love you, and so I'm going to do that. And so we get our feet and our hands and everything else dirty in the work of loving our brothers and sisters. And rather than concentrating on what divides us, We concentrate on the center that defines us. And that center is the person of Jesus.